1: Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think Podcast. If the word epicurean brings to mind a poor sign man in a toga reclining on a velvet couch and dropping fat, juicy grapes into his open mouth one by one, you are not alone. But this caricature, probably the descendant of some ancient propaganda by rival philosophers, tells us very little, in fact, about epicureanism. The worldview of the 4th century BCE Greek philosopher Epicurus and his later disciple Lucretius, whose ideas prefigured and shaped much of the modern world. My guest today is philosopher Catherine Wilson, author of the book How to Be an Epicurean, the Ancient Art of Living Well. At a confusing cultural moment where many people are looking for a guiding framework, she's here with a strident defense of Epicureanism as a way of life. In its pragmatic approach to embracing pleasure and minimizing pain, She sees a saner way of living in the world and maybe enjoying a few juicy grapes while you're at it. Welcome to Think Again, Kevin.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Jason. Great to be here.
1: You know, I was thinking you do such a good job in the book of clearly laying out what epicureanism is and how it might apply to many of the problems and questions that many of us face in the world today. But still, it's kind of hard to get a handle on and I was thinking I was thinking to myself, well, actually that's the case really with any ancient philosophy. Aristotelianism, you know, I can't imagine one that you could sum up in a, a neat soundbite.
2: Well, I think we could start with the with the concept of materialism, because a lot of people find that a very scary word. I think they're interpreting it in two ways. Possibly, one is. Um, consumerism materialism seems to be like right, the philosophy that uh, the more stuff you have the happier you'll be right. and the other um, the other thing they find scary is dialectical materialism of marx and lenin and That is not entirely unrelated because Marx was a reader of Epicurus and Lucretius, Marx and Engels, Um, but uh, really it doesn't have much to do with classical Epicureanism or the kind that um, I'll be mostly talking about. So
1: so I should say for listeners who don't know about this connection that the people who are afraid of this are people who are, number one, afraid of Marxism, and number two, know that Marxism owes something of its legacy to Epicureanism. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> right. well, which which maybe is that's probably not a, a small <laughs> subset of the population. Right. But Fifty years ago. They, they I don't uh, think don't. I was aware
1: of it until I read your book. Yeah.
2: Though I'm sure we'll get on to Epicurean political philosophy yes. at, at some point, because that, that is quite radical. Um, so real, real materialism, I find really interesting because... Just from starting with the principle that there is nothing but atoms and void, and then building on it successively, uh, you get to this complete theory of personal ethics, social ethics, how to think about religion, how to think about science, and it all hangs together very well.
1: And I'm gonna try to restrain myself from co-opting this conversation into a conversation about Buddhism, which I think and know a lot about. But I do have to say that one area of interesting overlap is that there seems to be within Epicureanism as you describe it, this kind of ability to hold two levels of reality in mind at once. The material level in the sense of things being composed of atoms and particles and therefore having only a kind of contingent reality we perceive arrangements of atoms and we interact with them. But on another level, all of those things are subject to decay and going back into different forms. And at the same time, life matters and we need to engage in it. And these forms that things take actually are relevant and important to us.
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right, both in... Buddhism and Epicureanism you have uh, you have the idea that we live in a world of appearances and social constructions and conventions and all of these things uh, are kind of impermanent and variable and changeable and i'm not sure what the uh, underlying stable thing is in buddhism because i think there's no self in buddhism and yeah, maybe there's no yeah i mean no- it would
1: it would be mm-hmm. such a long conversation but yeah. indeed i think there is actually more agreement than you might think in terms of the attempt to steer a middle course between the nihilism of nothing matters and the utter materialism of everything has eternal
2: According to Epicurean ontology, Mm -hmm. theory of what there is, there are atoms, which are tiny material particles. They just have an infinite number of shapes. They're very small, though. Nobody had microscopes at the time, so there was no expectation they would ever be seen. And, and they were
1: indivisible, right? They were I mean, indivisible, I, y- yeah.
2: yes. Okay. Um, therefore, indestructible. Therefore, they were the only things that could build up the universe. Right. Otherwise, everything would be destructible. There'd be nothing to start with. That was the idea. So um, all the colors and flavors and sounds and, and shapes of things in the world of experience just depend on how those atoms are configured and how they're moving around and how they're impacting us. Even the soul, they thought, was composed of tiny atoms.
1: Special atoms. Special Special soul atoms.
2: Right. (laughs) Especially small, especially mobile.
1: (laughs) So the atoms, we don't know where they came from originally, right? The configurations of things were built up, in a sense, by accident. In in the Epicurean worldview, like things banging into things and then forming stable configurations, which right, then persisted right. over time. Yeah,
2: the atoms were eternal, uncreated; they've just always been there. And um, yes, they get uh, swarming around if you if you leave them long enough. Uh, they form all possible combinations, and more and more stable combinations. Right. Uh, this is kind of proto-evolutionary thinking and the stable configurations persist. Right. At least for a while, of course. Everything changes ultimately, and you get the visible world just as we see it now.
1: I found that part very fascinating. I mean, the idea of particles banging together and then coming into stable configurations is very very similar to Daniel Dennett's explanation in his most recent book of how we make the transition from non-life to life and sort of how there's continuity in evolutionary theory, from things that preceded evolution,
2: right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Dennett yeah. it's a, yeah. a good Epicurean. <laughs> there there was a problem that uh, people noticed that, you no, know, how did if you think of atoms as little round things, how were they going to stick together? Mm. Um, but uh, the problem was addressed by saying that they actually had little protuberances and maybe hooks on them, so that they did, uh, you know, when they came to the right <laughs> <Okay>. configuration. <laughs> It okay. did actually these, these stick were, together. These were later sort of
1: like Talmudic elaborations on, on Epicureanism? Like...
2: I think Epicurus mentions the hooks. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. okay. okay. <laughs>
1: um, so what we have of Epicurean philosophy, we have from some fragments of work by Epicurus and then more completely and in slightly different form from Lucretius, right?
2: That's right. So there are was a huge body of of work by Epicurus. He wrote many books on all sorts of topics from kingship to physics to love to social world and ethics. And um, most of those most of those texts were buried in the eruption of Vesuvius. Right. And uh, they're now being dug up and amazingly really? some of these scrolls can be unrolled even though they're in terrible shape and largely burned and scholars are able to reconstruct Oh my many God! Of these, many of these things. So they
1: were so they were preserved in sort of air pockets under the volcanic mm-hmm. ash. Or, yeah. Oh my mm-hmm. God.
2: Yeah, but the uh, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but when you when you look at some of these reconstructions, there are many gaps and many things missing and conjectures. But fortunately, Lucretius, who came along a few centuries later, Roman as opposed to Greek, he had access to. The original Epicurean texts, including uh, a book called *On Nature*, right, and that became the basis of Lucretius's *De Rerum Natura*.
1: Is that sometimes translated as "On the Nature of"? On things? the nature of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, so that that's sort of a broad overview of the materialist viewpoint, and then for people in the modern world to find a way in to understand Epicureanism as a approach to life?
2: I mean, I think there are really um, three realms for application. So one is just personal life. How do I go about my day and make choices and decide what to do and and what not to do? Um, Second is treatment of other people uh, with whom I am in personal contact. And the third is political philosophy. So maybe starting with, with the first. Pursuit of pleasure is maybe not quite what Epicurus had in mind. Rather, there's a kind of permission mm. to, right, to right, accept pleasure and to be alert to the sources of pleasure right. as well as the sources of pain that there are in ordinary life. And the way I've tried to approach this in my book is to, um, to do something that the ancients uh, didn't do because they didn't live in a commercial society full of advertising. Sure. And what we have in modern life is a lot of people wanting to sell us things that will supposedly make our lives more pleasant. Right. So every time I go into the subway, I see advertisements for things I could buy yeah, that will supposedly might give me a better life. And,
1: and as a, any sort of semi-awake person living in this time has a, maybe a healthy skepticism of, of all of these enticements to pleasure. And therefore, if they misunderstand Epicureanism to be about solely the pursuit of pleasure, might be skeptical about that yeah. as well.
2: Yeah, that's right. And um, in a way, I'm I'm sort of a victim. Of this myself, my son once commented that I cannot pass a shop window full of glittery objects without <laughs> stopping. <laughs> so, I,
1: can, I don't think I can either, actually. <laughs>
2: yeah. Though modern life gives us many beautiful and interesting things in uh, in any shop window yeah, uh, or uh, on Amazon or in Best Buy. And... Um, some of these things will give us pleasure and right. we should have permission to indulge ourselves, but many of them are just illusions or bring a short-term lift and don't really contribute to human life. So I was trying to stress the things one can do to beautify one's surroundings and get more pleasure just from how the household is, is organized right. um, without spending money. Some of the things one can do are concerned more with avoiding pain, mm. um, avoiding disagreeable sensations, than with actually, uh, right, beautifying.
1: Immediately, Marie Kondo came to mind, <laughs> yes, yeah. right, and yes. I thought, you know, I thought that if you Marie Kondoize <laughs> your home environment, you are in many ways minimizing pain by decluttering <laughs> and making things, yes. you know, more accessible and.
2: Yes, exactly. Clear. I think <laughs> I think in, in one of my one of my few. I try not to be too prescriptive in this book because you know I'm just a philosopher. I just try to explain how I see the world. I'm not a, really a self-help guru. Sure. But um, but I did make a suggestion. I think it's I think it's in the book that if you want to make your kitchen and bathroom look better, get rid of every plastic bottle right. that has writing on it and put it out of sight because and you're <laughs>
1: because you're because it 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 it's grabbing your attention and you're reading sort of irrelevant and distracting things. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> and it's it's not a beautifully shaped object. That's right. And, and
1: maybe I, I guess if you were going to replace them with print it should be books of poetry or possibly <laughs> Lucretius. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Or just a green plant <laughs> or that. Right. Yeah.
2: Put everything in a in a drawer.
1: Again, it's, it's reductive to try to put this into a nutshell, but like sort of what is the good life for Epicurus? I mean, we have the idea of the garden, and my understanding was that he and his followers would literally hang out in a garden, and the idea was about fellowship, and also that unlike other schools of Greek philosophy, women were fully welcomed in as equals. But, yeah, what more can we say about sort of what the good life is for him?
2: Well, it was actually quite intellectual, I think, for Epicurus. He really thought that researching into the nature of things, understanding how the world works scientifically and and sociologically and politically uh, were real sources of gratification, right, understanding the world. And he admitted that as far as science went, that was pretty hard in third mm-hmm. century BCE, but still, you could make observations. You could try to understand how things worked, and you could you could uh, conjure up models and and think about whether they they fit the phenomena. So
1: thus far, he that seems to align with what I know of Aristotle's view of the good life.
2: Yes, yeah, it's a you, use your intellectual faculties, and at the same time, uh, there is of course this this emphasis on. Sensory pleasure, all sensory modalities, taste, hearing, scent, sex. He's one of the, I think he's the only ancient philosopher that has a positive view of sex.
1: Huh. That's not the case with Socrates. I mean, I'm aware of Socrates sort of like there's a fair amount of sex in Plato, no?
2: Yes, that's right. But it's always has to be sort of spiritualized Got for you. Plato. Got you. Uh, or for Socrates even. It's a step to something higher.
1: So there's a thing about being able to appreciate things as they are and not necessarily create some romantic framework around them, being able to enjoy aspects of life as it is.
2: Yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to intellectualize pleasure. And uh, you have an intellectual life, but that's kind of operating on a, on a different level from your sensory enjoyments. At right. the
1: same time, like when we think of sort of indulgence or gluttony, or we think of pleasures that might become addictive, that isn't something that Epicurus would likely support.
2: That's right. Um, prudence is a big concept that uh, you have to become aware of the after effects and side effects, uh, especially of the pursuit of pleasure. So drinking too much, eating too much, messing around too much all have bad effects on your on your health and your psychology. And
1: that's prudence both with respect to kind of your own well-being individually and also your existence in society. Like it's important as well as I understand it from your book, you know, to think about convention and to weigh the social consequences of your actions as well even though it sounds like he supported a fair amount of independent thinking and and behavior.
2: Yeah. The ethical principle in Epicureanism is strikingly simple, and I think very different from any other ancient philosophy principle. It's don't do harm or do less harm or try to minimize harm. Mm -hmm. And that applies both in direct interpersonal relations and in political judgment. So, yes, many of the things that that we do are not only self-regard, Harding, as philosophers like John Stuart Mill in the 19th century called them but they have they have effects on other people what I do about my health if I smoke or drink too much or drive dangerously right. um, <laughs> that's going to affect many other people if it uh, doesn't doesn't turn out so well. So there are very few things that we do to ourselves that don't have some effect on other people and also in the political sphere.
1: I want to get on to the political sphere, which we'll do after this one question that I want to ask, which is about nature. There's one point in the book where you talk about the contrast between nature and convention what's natural and what's conventional at one point in the book you speak about epicureanism as being somehow about living in accordance with nature but also it seems like in other places we're talking about the the importance of looking at and being aware of convention so in what sense is epicureanism about living in accordance with nature and where does it depart
2: yeah that's right There really those those two aspects and uh, it's interesting you you put it that way because i hadn't thought about it so explicitly mm. but there's one strand of epicureanism that kind of stresses the continuity between humans and animals and uh, really sees humans as just part of the animal world. All animals um, enjoy pleasure and flee Avoid from pain, pain yeah. flee from pain. Lucretius is very interested in maternal affections of animals and um, sees a similarity between cows and humans in that respect. And unlike the Stoics uh, who are uh, always always emphasizing that humans are superior, humans have rationality, humans have immortal souls, animals do They
1: demand a lot of us in terms of self-restraint.
2: That too, but they want to emphasize differences. Yeah. And on the one hand, Epicureans want to emphasize similarities. But another thing Epicureans emphasize is the progress from the um, original state of humanity, where we were living, they thought, pretty much as wild animals, at first uh, quite solitary and then banding together into families and tribes and then developing civilization. Uh, They have a very good analysis of how the discovery of metal and agriculture transformed human life that is now anthropologically very well attested. And how humans then uh, created this whole world of laws and institutions and conventions and superstitions that didn't exist in the original state of mankind and that form the world that we now live in.
1: That view of the original state of mankind as as you describe it in the book overlaps with in my imagination with Garden of Eden, with also what with what I think is sometimes derided as the noble savage idea, the idea that somehow in an earlier state we were in more natural relationship with the world and ourselves, we were happier, we were better. But then I've also heard other analyses like Yuval Noah Harari and and, and other places that, that indeed that, that kind of was the case. I mean, that before civilization, before Mesopotamia, people actually had more free time than we often think that they did they spent more time sort of around the fire together
2: absolutely <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and and lucretius is is very even-handed about this he says civilization has brought us roads and architecture and sculpture and all these wonderful things. But at the same time, we have, it's its brought corruption and fear and warfare and slavery and misery for a lot of people. So it's done both.
1: He doesn't advocate a kind of like going off and starting a commune exactly, although the garden is kind of like that, right? Yes,
2: the garden garden is, is very much like that. Okay, so, so, so <laughs> maybe he does. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
1: okay. So but then And insofar as we do, those of us who are trapped living in society or don't manage to start a garden, how then does this translate into political philosophy? The
2: way we're taught in school is that there used to be kings and queens, and then some revolutions came along, and uh, now we have a democracy, and we have a president, and everything is... Stable. It is (laughs) stable, yeah. (laughs) but <laughs> the epicurean the epicurean perspective tells you that the way that political society started was by plunder warfare aggression intimidation and superstitious control of people. The earliest societies were all slave societies, early civilizations.
1: Basically consolidation of power yes. at scale. Yeah. yeah.
2: And gradually in some parts of the world, we have moved away from that because people have developed self-awareness about history, about how these things came to be, and we no longer officially believe in things like blue blood or racial superiority. We see those as social fictions that dominated people's minds for centuries, but we're not buying it anymore. But what we have to realize is that we have not made the transition fully away from these old societies of coercion, violence, domination, and oligarchy, Mm -hmm. um, rule by the rich. We have partially moralized the world. Many of our institutions now strive for a more egalitarian, more welfare. I've just learned yesterday that welfare is not a good word to use. It has very negative associations, Okay, even though we philosophers think of it as... Well-being, right, and right, a good right, state to right, be right, in, right, right, but right. it has connotations. Of, <laughs> right. So we need to realize in politics that we're still moving away from those old models and that the aim of politics really should be, as they knew in the 19th century, but I think we've largely forgotten, to think in terms of the common good, the good of the whole, minimizing violence, minimizing disruption, pain, inconvenience to people, And this requires uh, a rebalancing of uh, where the assets in our society and where the power is
1: there's a tiny Foucault in the back of my head uh, as as I'm listening <laughs> it's saying to me that rather than actually having grown in any way like uh, the, the forms of power have simply metastasized or transformed or disguised themselves or whatever. But this is a optimistic yes, view. Yes, I'm yeah. a little more optimistic <laughs> than, than, than Foucault
2: was. I mean, right now, uh, as we speak, young people are mobilizing Indeed. against Indeed. Today against is climate. right.
1: Today is a Uh, Worldwide, I guess, protests against climate change are happening.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, it's coming from them, it's not coming from my generation or your generation even.
1: Indeed. So then an Epicurean approach to politics would be that individuals should work together to correct these imbalances of power, to make the systems more fair.
2: Yes, right, that the power of corporations, especially multinational corporations, and politicians, and they're often tightly related. We have to recognize that that is just a continuation of old models of power, ambition, and, and greed.
1: And that is maybe one of the distinctive features of Epicureanism, as you present is the fact that it activates people in the world, or that it gives them permission to take action to make their lives better, as opposed to passively letting things be as they are, trying to endure suffering.
2: Um, yeah, I think that's that's true in several ways in, in Epicureanism. One idea is that there is absolutely no top-down regulation by providence or God. Right. And I suspect that a lot of people who don't worry about climate change or the way inequality is increasing in this country... Kind of think well, God is in charge, and God is benevolent and all-powerful, and all this must be somehow for the best. Right, and well, we should just accept that this is God's will, and this is the way things are going to turn or out. Or the
1: apocalypse will come, and yes, you know, it will yeah. all end anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah if yeah. you're
2: right, a, a fundamentalist of that sort, and. The Epicurean (laughs) view is nobody is in charge except human beings themselves. Mm -hmm. It's up to them. And since there's no other life than this one, life has got to be made better now.
1: You talk about moral responsibility to others and how for Epicurus death is a natural thing. It's a thing to be, I think he talks about it in multiple ways, right? But sometimes he talks about it as a thing to be welcomed or a thing to be recognized as natural and to be comfortable with. And also, there are no, there is no creator God, there is no afterlife. And so why then the responsibility to other people, you talk a little bit about this in the book, besides my own self-interest, beyond, besides the like, if I treat you badly, you might treat me badly. Like, if I can get away with it, why shouldn't I serve my own pleasure?
2: Well, what the, what the Epicureans say was found uh, very unsatisfactory by their critics because they really thought you have A pleasure-based incentive to be moral. Other people will treat you better if you are honest with them, (laughs) kind to them. Don't manipulate them (laughs) in ways that they can figure out. And uh, life will be easier for you because you will escape uh, the resentment of others and uh, you will incur their gratitude and trust and affection. And what more could you possibly wish from other people than their gratitude, trust, and and affection?
1: So a sort of a self-serving model. Of, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: And later writers uh, and Stoics thought this was terrible. That <laughs> uh, The motivation for ethics should be your aspiration to a higher ethical state. It should be pure. Philosopher Kant has a lot to say about this. Um, but uh, um, philosophers like Adam Smith and David Hume took this very seriously and, and thought, yes, that is the way ethics is, is constructed. And on the political level, when you, when you realize that other people too have the same pain and pleasure liability as you, right. and when you put that in the center of your ethics, then you stop caring about concepts like rights and traditions and abstracta like that, right, you really right. get down to, to basics. And one of, the, uh, one of the other interesting features of Epicurean metaphysics is uh, not just the swerve, the idea that things can happen unpredictably and by chance, um, but that innovation is always possible, that humans are an innovative species. Mm. They invented all these ancient arts, um, weaving and metalworking right. and agriculture with- Some um, negative right, externalities. Some, some, some. <laughs> you know, but they can also invent uh, great things, wonderful things, new ways of doing things, new laws, new institutions. So this is why I have a lot of optimism about the future. I'm just really happy about these young people out there today. That's innovation.
1: The self-interest model, you know, if I'm kind to you, you'll be kind to me. That benefits my pleasure. That benefits my well-being. Okay, sure. Pragmatically on one level, that's true. Then you spoke about understanding that other people suffer, that other people have the same desire for pleasure and happiness that you do. And that that feels different to me. That feels like empathy and compassion.
2: Um, So the reason Epicureanism doesn't lead to a kind of overblown idea of self-interest as get all you can is that they stress that there's only so much wealth uh, that you can actually enjoy. Having a hundred bottles of top champagne in your (laughs) cellar, right? It's really not going to bring you any more pleasure than having one bottle. So more is not always Better. after a certain point after yeah. a certain point right and and psychologists are telling us uh, the same thing all the time so if you have modest wants and you can satisfy them, you are just as happy right. as the billionaire. So you don't have to trample on as many people um, to get that. And all great wealth, says Epicurus, is somehow based on exploitation of others. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm afraid that is really true. So self-interest is is naturally limited for the Epicurean. So you're not going to harm as many people because you're not in pursuit. There of, isn't
1: this endless imperative to. Grow. Growth and grandiose, you know, achievement.
2: Right. And as for teaching children, yes, um, (laughs) pedagogy for young people, a lot of it is just based on no, don't touch that. Right. Right. (laughs)
1: Right. I have an 11-year-old son, and when I think about what worldview a parent wants to share with their child, it feels like an important space within which to consider one's values and ethics. And I know a lot of parents, and I can. I know there are probably some that teach their children, go get whatever you can and, mm-hmm. you know, try not to piss people off enough so that they harm you. But the vast majority that I know would would not be comfortable with that as a world framework. And so it's not simply about protecting the children from harm, but with what feels like a right way to educate humans.
2: Yeah, perhaps there is a bit of... Um in teaching children that there are rules that are just the rules, right, and no philosophical justification for them—that is just what you do. You tell the truth. Maybe that is necessary uh-huh. with them. But later on, of course, they ask questions. Sure. Right? Why? Why should I? And. Um, you can go down the platonic route and give them a whole story about the, how the well-ordered soul is like a well-ordered society in which everybody's doing their job, or you can go down the conscience route that you will feel better, more comfortable if you observe the conventional virtues.
1: This is the part of the show where we watch surprise clips from Big Things video archives, and these were chosen by our producers on the video team, I have not watched them, Catherine has not watched them, and we'll we'll watch and see where we go from there. So this first one is called, What Creates a Mass Shooter? It might be the conditioning of men. And it's with Michael Kaufman, who's the founder of something called the White Ribbon Campaign, the largest effort in the world of men working to end violence against women.
0: The common characteristic, whether it's a shooting based on homophobia whether it's based on right-wing terrorism, whether it's based on um, just some disgruntled young person or old not so young person, there's a common denominator. And the common denominator, these are men doing the shooting. And you know, can you imagine if these shootings were being t- done by women? There'd be this national conversation on what's happening with women now. Why are women doing these things? But we almost take it for granted that, oh, well, it's ju- just men, it's, it's just boys. Um, it's it's this almost like the sickest version of boys will be boys. And, and so we've got, to, you know, we've got to look at the, the, all the issues that we look at around it. We've got to look at issues around gun control. We've got to lo- look at issues um, around um, you know, mental health. We've got to look at um, substance, I mean, whatever it might be, racism. But we also have to look at issues around masculinity if you've learned from birth that you will have power as a man, you will be in control. So two things happen with that. One is you learn to exercise power in certain circumstances. You learn how to fight. You learn how to, you know, to, 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 to act on aggressive impulses. Um, and so on the, on the one hand, that can lead to forms of men's violence, using violence, using aggression to get your way or to make your statement or whatever it might be. But it's also the paradox. Because these are men by and large doing this who feel disenfranchised, who feel unentitled, who feel put down. Now maybe all those things are an illusion and, and, and may well be, but at the same time we can see this paradox within their lives that at the same time as carrying around power, this power to kill. They also feel enormous you know, fear and loneliness and isolation and it's coming out in the most horrendous way. It can't, it's not coming out in them asking for help it's not coming out you know with them going to a friend or a parent and saying i'm so sad i'm so scared i'm so hurt i'm so alienated can you give me a hug it doesn't come out with them going you know to get you know to to seek help from a doctor or therapist it's coming out in the form of rage and hostility the very things that we've celebrated in men's lives i'm not saying we've celebrated murder but we certainly celebrate that ability to, you know, to, to, to take action, to do something, to leave your stamp on things, to have your way, to be in charge, to get ahead. We celebrate those things. And what happens is when you combine that with you know, these deep feelings of, of resentment, of, of, of anger, they can form a they can form a really lethal cocktail. And we're seeing that more and more.
2: So um, I think his analysis is uh, is spot on as, as far as it goes. But you don't have this phenomenon in other countries that don't have two things that are very visible here. And one is, of course, the availability of, of weapons that is so little controlled in this country. And the other is the constant glorification all around us of Male violence. Now, walking around in the subway, because I spend a lot of time in the subway noticing right. what the advertising is like, there's billboard after billboard that is celebrating some incredibly violent movie where people have weapons of mass destruction. And nowadays, there's always a woman in there with a machine gun as well.
1: <laughs> right. <But laughs> right. 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 <laughs> e- equality means giving giving mm. women access to the same toxic
2: masculinity. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or you know, some TV show about a mass murderer or a psychopath who kills women or something. And this is just, we're all being mm. fed a steady stream of this. And it really is quite unusual. You don't see this in the subway in London. You don't see this in the subway in Paris. You don't see this in the subway in, in Berlin. You see this in the subway in New York.
1: I feel like the glorification of violence, while it has taken on you know, cartoonish properties in our time, is as American as apple pie, going all the way back, you know, to cowboys and shootouts in the street and so on.
2: Maybe, but um, I mean, I I notice it even from one year to the next.
1: Without making ridiculous generalizations, I guess that there are versions of toxic masculinity in other cultures. You know, men being taught in Japan, for example, to repress their emotions and be in a s- state of command, or certain machismo in Russian and Slavic culture, you know, or other cultures, that that isn't necessarily unique to America, but we're the only ones with mass shootings, really. Right yeah, now. that's yeah. right. I mean, domestic
2: <laughs> domestic violence is ubiquitous, an awful lot of that, but... Uh, Around the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. What do you think Epicurus or Lucretius might have to say about that aspect of of the argument, about the, the way that men are taught to be men in this culture? And I mean, I was thinking about that in terms of the, the like, in accordance with nature concept, because you have some evolutionary psychologists, and I hear sort of dangerous arguments from folks like Jordan Peterson, talking about archetypes of masculinity and femininity, and harking back to these things as somehow natural, and therefore to be reclaimed.
2: Well, I'm not sure what they would have to say about it. Um, I know I have to say about sure. it, because I've even written on, okay. on okay. these topics. So I think that there are, there are some Psychological differences between males and females that are pretty well attested, and for one thing, males are more irritable than mm. females. Mm. No, they're just they're more liable to rage, and um, when you give them also a permission or an encouragement to be liable to rage, you get a lot more of this rage that the speaker was was talking about. Women also, I think, find it somewhat easier to get along without know, the sort of success that uh, he thought many many young men lacked—they didn't quite have a place in the world. Mm-hmm. I think this is less something that women women suffer from, at and least you're in our culture. That
1: you're, are you are you framing that as a, a biological, as opposed yeah, to possibly a cultural as thing?
2: Okay. as a as a biological thing? Because you know, we women we sort of know that our responsibility in the world is get food and raise our children, and I think this even when we don't have children. Um, No, this is still somehow imprinted in us. That said, so I admit there are some psychological differences. They can be maximized or minimized by how the culture is treating us. In the 18th century, men were very emotional and sentimental (laughs) and shed tears and were incredibly romantic um, because that was uh, encouraged by the culture. Now, not so much. But it's labile, it's flexible, and in Epicurean society, I don't think there was much sense that men and women were fundamentally different that way.
1: I mean, psychology looks at large data sets, often speaking as a man and the man that I am in the culture that I grew up in. I can say that, like, I definitely feel, I definitely have the sense that the culture or masculinity as I absorbed it from, you know, the ether tried to teach me, has tried to teach me to repress emotion, to be more action oriented, be more tough, be more whatever than I necessarily naturally am, you know, that my interests were much more conversational, empathic, connective, you know, and so on. And that that's something I've had to kind of re-educate myself to, you know, that I I do see those social coercions.
2: Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. 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 So we've got three things going on in these shooting episodes. We've got the availability of weapons. That's political, legislative. We've got the social pressures and teaching. And then we've got this slightly fragile Personal structure that some men suffer from more than than others for whatever reason, and it's the the uh, confluence of <laughs> those three things that explains why we're seeing what we're seeing.
1: All right, this one is called oh wow okay biohacking while I'll live to be 180 <laughs> years old with Dave Asprey, who's a um, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and uh, I believe he's the creator of that thing bulletproof coffee.
3: When I was 14, I was diagnosed with arthritis in my knees and I remember going home, I was, I was shaken because in my mind as a 14-year-old, I said, look, this is a disease that old people get. And now that I'm 46, when I say old people, I'm talking about people that I respect and admire, the sources of wisdom, and I cultivate friends uh, when I can find them at least twice as old as I am because they know all the stuff that I haven't learned yet. Uh, but at the time I said I'm young I'm a teenager I'm not supposed to be experiencing this and I was dealing with metabolic issues I already had stretch marks that still cover me I hit 300 pounds in my very early 20s and I started having brain fog in my mid 20s I was diagnosed with high risk of stroke and heart attack like very high risk sort of you know, circled by the doctor when I was 29 years old it turns out I was dealing with all the stuff that normally hits you when you're 60-plus. And I was doing it as a young man. And it scared the heck out of me. And it did that because no one likes to sort of look in the mirror at a time when you're supposed to be growing your career and say, I can't remember what's what happened in that meeting. It's just gone. And I'm so tired. I, just, I, I can't put one foot in front of the other, but I'm going to do it some way anyway. It turned out that The people who knew how to fix this weren't my doctor. My doctor told me vitamin C would actually kill me, believe it or not, so I fired him. And for four years I became my own scientist. Fortunately I'm a computer hacker and I know how to do that kind of thing. Uh, But then I hooked up with an anti-aging nonprofit group. And I started hanging out with these people full of wisdom who were making themselves younger. And the stuff that they knew the things I was learning from them and from the top researchers in the world, they made me better. They gave me the tools of what became biohacking, a, a movement of people that's now even a word in the dictionary that didn't exist eight years ago. Well, it turns out that those tools that make older people young make younger people kick ass. And that's been a foundational thing for what I've done with Bulletproof and for what's changed my life in a very dramatic way. I'm about 10 maybe 10.2% body fat right now. I don't experience hunger on a regular basis. I love what I eat. I have more energy at 46 than I did at 26. I mean, I feel amazing. My brain works. I can remember all the things I want to remember. I don't drop words. And it's been absolutely liberating. It also cost a million dollars along the way. And that is completely unfair. Now, I am very fortunate that I was able to do that. Because I worked at the company that held Google's first servers when Google was two servers and two guys So I had a leg up early on and I was able to spend myself to wellness to make a lot of mistakes to waste a lot of money Getting younger and then to say all right How do I go beyond getting younger and it is that deep knowledge of 20 years of working? with the world's best anti-aging researchers and scientists and reading the papers and doing the work and trying it myself uh, that led me to say with reasonable confidence, look, I'm going to make it to at least 180 if I want to. And that's not the cap, that's the floor.
1: Stick around, folks, and let's see if Dave Asprey actually makes it to 180.
2: But... <laughs> yeah, well, the death. Here's someone who does not want to accept the natural limit of human life, which is well, nowadays somewhere in the uh, probably middle 80s for somebody like him. On one hand, I have a lot of sympathy for what he's trying to do. He lost a lot of weight. His skin looks great. um, He says all his brain fog has disappeared. And all of this through presumably manipulating his diet and doing some expensive things that he didn't tell us about. He's probably getting plasma injections or the blood of young people people or something (laughs) like that. But for this sort of the ambition to live to 180, I have no sympathy with that and i think he said it himself this is not something everybody can do and if everybody could do it it would be a total disaster for the, planet, for the world yeah, for, the, right, yeah, for right. the planet so a few rich people who made some money in silicon valley are going to do this well you know good luck to them but uh, this has no philosophical significance except it's another idea of crazy rich people
1: yes and putting aside the question of eternal life though like his own experience right and these this kind of thing where someone says i have been you know misunderstood by the system the system <laughs> offers me nothing for what my problem is i did x y and z and my life was transformed right <laughs> and there we have the we have the sort of problem of truth claims because we can't we can't be that person right that one person <laughs> says that that happened to them and so then that's where for those who believe in science <laughs> science <laughs> steps in and says okay <laughs> let's look at but When individuals claim that their problems are different from any other problems in the world and that science has no way of comparing them to somebody else because they don't know what to do, like, what do we do with that?
2: So for the Epicurean, you should trust science to a certain extent, to a very large extent, because it's the most refined way we have of taking experience, finding regularities, synthesizing observations, and coming up and telling you something that you can't necessarily see on the surface because it's all about the atoms and how they're interacting and what they're producing. Global warming is an example. But at the same time, science makes mistakes um, and science makes medical mistakes. And there's an awful lot of uncertainty in science, of failure to diagnose things and sometimes people going out on their own, doing research on their own, like Dave Asprey, they actually come up with something.
1: Right. So so we can't entirely discount it. We can't discount entirely that. discount it.
2: Right. right.
1: But, then, uh, but then when he begins talking about living to 180, then our certain sensors in our brains do light
2: up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Some people just want to know, what did he do? I want to do that too.
1: They, they, they want to drink that coffee. <laughs> um, Catherine Wilson, I, I want to thank you for coming on Think Again today. This was, this was a lot of fun.
2: Good. Thank and, you. I enjoyed
1: it. And Catherine's book is called How to Be an Epicurean, The Ancient Art of Living Well. And that's another episode of Think Again. If you've decided to become an Epicurean, or if you have a million good reasons why not, feel free to write me an email. Uh, On my website, jasongotts.com, there's a forum for emailing me, and I always do my very best to write back. We'll be back next week with something totally different, and I hope you can be here, too. This
3: is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming...